Well, hello, this is Joanne Dennison, CMP, and welcome to another episode of Sit in the Attendees Chair. Thank you for joining us today, and hopefully you've had a chance to listen to some of the ones posted prior to this. And uh, this is going to be a very different kind of podcast, and I'll explain why in a minute. But first of all, I want to introduce you or have them introduce themselves to everyone who's in the room with me today. And we're actually like face-to-face. All four of us are in the same room, which is pretty exciting these days, isn't it? Um, So uh, we'll start with on microphone number one. Hi, Kelly here. I'm sure you've heard my voice a lot in each episode. (laughs) And Kelly is also uh, um, handling the whole soundboard today. And we were trying to decide whether to put in special effects or not. So who knows? We might, but Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> Let's go over here. Microphone four. Hi, it's Pauline. Um, I've been on a couple of podcasts already. Um, I'm excited to be back here. And we're excited to have Pauline back because Pauline has been uh, in uh, France, which is her um, native country, I mm-hmm. guess would be better than home since you've lived over here now pretty much full time for five, six years. Yeah. And on a future podcast, you're going to be hearing a lot more from uh, Pauline, but we're really thrilled to have her back. probably want a Great trip with your family. Yes, it was really fun. Cool. <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll get to hear a lot about um, travel and uh, what's going on in France right now and and things like that in a, a podcast really soon. But we're we're glad she's here, safe and sound. And uh, on microphone two, who's going to be the star of today's show? Ta-da! Is Steve the Great? Hello, listeners. <laughs> And what some a few of you might know, but a lot of you don't, is um, first of all, he's not Steve the Great. If you haven't taken a recent CMP class, you have no idea why he's <laughs> saying that. Please know he named himself. We'll leave that at that. But it seems to have caught on amongst other people not in our household. It, it applies. It, mm-hmm. um, it's and, applicable. But he is also known as Steve Hoffman, the tax translator. And that is the reason he is our guest um, today, more than just hanging out and making random comments, because today, believe it or not, we are going to talk about tax and meetings and events and all the different, maybe not all, but a lot of the common tax issues you run into, and sometimes you don't even know you're running into them, which is part of why we want to educate you today. Uh, about that um so yeah we're going to talk tax and that's steve's pretty close favorite thing in the world is to talk tax. it's the best thing in the world to talk about <clears throat> you know living with a meeting planner uh, i hear her talking to literally hundreds of people and i've been in i don't know how many classes of hers <clears throat> and there are things that come up that made both joanne and i realize that there is an intersection between tax and meetings and events and sometimes there are collisions in that intersection so well steve thinks tax pertains to everything and i have to admit after 12 years i'm beginning to kind of see his point um and uh and he also believes tax rules the world but that's absolutely whole whole nother thing so first of all kelly and pauline feel free to jump in like if something is like because if you have a question like you know, that means someone else is having that question, too. You know, I've gotten a little too close to this tax stuff, just like he's gotten a little too close to the meetings and events. But, um, you know, so if anything, you know, jump in and be our, our listeners 
question or our <laughs> listener's voice or something. Listener's voice. That almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But anyway, um, <laughs> so what we're going to start talking about first, because I think um, it's a big issue in our industry. I, it, it's actually from being around, Steve, I know it's a big issue in almost any industry, is the topic of independent contractors, which, you know, he, he mocks me and us out because we use all these shortened firms. It took me forever to realize every time he said IC, he was referring to independent contractor. You know, BEO, BEO. Yeah, I know, I'm <laughs> saying, but, you know, you, you, think, you think we're the only ones that have them, and at least I got them to stop giving me IRS tax form numbers. So, obviously, this is from the perspective of United States tax, um, but it, it does have some international uh, implications and, and everything. So we're going to start with independent contractors. And uh, do we want to explain what an independent contractor is, or should I give some examples of where I see it happening in the industry, and then you say what it is? What do you think? Would be Go right ahead. Okay. So where I see, having been an independent meeting planner for years, uh, People would hire me, obviously, um, and they would hire me as an independent contractor as opposed to a paid employee. And at the time I was starting my business was right around the time all the questions came up about independent contractors. But uh, I look back and luckily I did everything very safe. Um, just who knows why, but I did. But here's the thing. Um, there's a fine line between who's an independent contractor and who's a paid employee, which he's going to talk about. So I see this happen a lot with any kind of independent meeting planners, a lot of other entrepreneurs. I see where um, everything from where a client will try to hire you as a paid employee, um, but also maybe you're going on for a six-month period and maybe you should actually be a be a paid employee as opposed to an independent contractor. So I think from the planner end, it's very important. Well, from an entrepreneur end, it's very important that you understand when are you an independent contractor and when are you not. And for those of you who are hiring people to do work like travel directors or, you know, um, extra AV help or whoever it might be, that you understand when you can and should hire someone as an independent contractor versus an employee. This is a real, real big challenge. And people don't, sometimes people deliberately try to skirt around it for reasons he'll say, and other times they just don't know they're not doing the right thing. So go ahead and explain what an independent contractor is. Okay, well, you, you hit the nail on the head. An independent contractor, first of all, is not an employee. Doesn't mean they shouldn't be classified as an employee. But like you said, <coughs> many people will tend to skirt around the issue because, you know, if we bring them on payroll, they have to fill out all those forms and they have to do that and we have to wait for the background check and it takes so long to get somebody hired, I'll just bring them on as an independent contractor. So <coughs> the thing is, I mean, this is a big issue with the IRS. The IRS believes there's this huge underground cash economy that they believe amounts to $300 billion. Now, I don't know where they got that number at, but they said $300 billion is going out to people being paid and people weren't paying tax on. So they're very much concerned about that. So let me first start with the reporting requirement, if I may. It's 
and Joanne always laughs at me, it's $600 or more. If you pay an independent contract, and I say it that way because that's the way the IRS says it. If you pay them $600 or more, you have to report that on a form to the IRS and to the individual as well. $600 or more. $599, you don't. $600, yes. $601, yes. So that's the reporting requirement. If you have somebody that you're using and you're calling them an independent contractor and you pay them $600 or more, then you are required and responsible to file that form. And I'm going to use a form number, 1099-NEC. That stands for Non-Employee Compensation. used to be on a different form, and they took that block off and created a whole other form because we don't have enough paperwork. So... They created that form because they can process it quicker, uh, more quickly, and uh, go out and uh, nibble on that $300 billion uh, cash economy that they believe. So, so what happens when, stop, uh, sorry, what happens when they fill that form? Like, so what? So they filled out a 1099 NEC or whatever it was. Um, I still just call it a 1099. Copy goes to the IRS so the, they know. That That's key for you to understand. The IRS now knows that financial transaction has happened. They know. And if that individual would happen to file their tax return and not report that $600 or more, they will, they will get a letter in the mail that said, hey, we got a copy of this. You didn't report it. Um, give us some more money plus penalty plus interest is basically what it amounts to. So they're, they – now have the ability, computers don't forget anything, uh, they have the ability now to, to, to track, uh, assuming that you do fill out that form. And if you don't fill out that form, you can be, you as the organization or you as the entrepreneur, can be penalized and fined for not completing that form in the case of where you paid somebody $600 or more who was not an independent contractor. <coughs> now, an independent contractor should be somebody who um, is doing the same thing for you that they do for other people. In other words, that's their business. Uh, I mean, in theory, and everybody disagrees with this, but if you have a plumber come to your house and you pay him 600 or more, you're supposed to issue a, s a 1099 NEC. Um, nobody does that, so they're not worried about that. They're looking at the organizations and the events, not the individual uh, type of transactions that go on so the plumber's still supposed to report that money though oh yes and if the plumber is is running his business correctly and he's not just some guy doing it on the side um <coughs> hopefully they are reporting a, le a legitimate business and this is it just jumping in you know uh especially when i had the event you know was focused on meetings and events I never got a 1099. If I got a 1099 from one client a year, that was a lot. Even now with doing the speaking and everything like that, I don't get a lot of 1099s. Um, we usually do paperwork, you know, once you live with a tax person, just like living on the media and event planner. You know, you start going, okay, I need to do these things right, too. And I didn't know I was doing anything wrong, and I reported everything. I mean, mm -hmm. I was nutsy about reporting mm -hmm. any income that I had because I was always so scared of being caught by the IRS, among other things. Plus, it was a legal and ethical thing to do. But go ahead. Yeah, the, the other thing, you know, I've been talking at the federal level with the IRS, et cetera. But there are some uh, states now that are 
beginning to pay more attention to this underground cash economy. For instance, if you are a planner and you had an event in North Carolina and you, have an you hired an independent contractor, you, uh, as the person making the payment, must withhold 4% of the money that you pay them and send it to the North Carolina State Department of Revenue. Then it's up to the individual to file a North Carolina, even if they don't live there, to file a North Carolina income tax return and see if they can get a refund. Um, in the city of Philadelphia, out-of-state employers, so you're not in Pennsylvania, um, are not required to withhold Philadelphia's income tax. They have their own income tax if they don't have a physical location within Pennsylvania. So you're in Pennsylvania somewhere else and you have an event in Philadelphia. Philadelphia has its own little tax thing going about independent contractors. So you're in Pennsylvania, you have an event in Philadelphia, you have an independent contractor, you are required to withhold Philadelphia's income tax. And I know of at least one meeting planner, I learned about that about probably 15, maybe more years ago, and they moved their meeting because they hired a lot of independent contractors for that particular uh, meeting because they were grading certification exams or something. And they moved it right outside the Philadelphia border, so they didn't have to do that. Right. So what Good I hear you saying planning. is you need to um, – she was the same one who was check measuring federal, water usage. But check anyway. federal and state. Yeah, check federal and state. But can we go back for a minute to independent sure. contractors? Because um, can you talk a little bit about who is an independent contractor? Because I made the comment that an independent meeting planner might be hired for a three-month gig or a six-month gig, maybe full-time, you know, during that period of time where they're not necessarily doing a lot of work for someone else. You know, maternity leave, or that's a big one, I would say. Mm -hmm. You know, maternity leaves or a, fam a family leave or something like that. Well, we only need you for three months. We only need you for six months. Well. But please know that this pertains to more than independent planners. It's anyone who is doing, whether it be they are entrepreneurs or they're doing um, side work, uh, freelance work uh, besides their full-time job. Could um, be an association or even corporate planners that hire independent contractors to fill in, like you say, for mm -hmm. maternity leave, for instance. Mm -hmm. If you bring in a person who is going to do the same exact job as that employee did, then the person you bring in, according to the IRS, is an employee. So you should be paying them and withholding and filing as you did for the employee that you're replacing. There was a, a huge Microsoft case, was one of the big ones, um, where they had uh, independent contractors for like eight years. And uh, uh, an independent a person who is an independent contractor can uh, file a form with the IRS and say, hey, I, th I think I should be an employee. And they send that to the IRS along with <coughs> all the reasons why that person thinks they should be. The IRS looks at that. Uh, they send a letter back to the employer, say, hey, we got this. What's your take on it? And in, I think I saw a statistic. It was like 96% of the time they will side with the fact that that person should be an employee. What that meant for Microsoft and those employees for over a period of eight years was lots of things. Um, the employees over that period of eight years received uh, stock options. 
So they had to grant those retroactively to all of those independent contractors. Microsoft. S Microsoft. 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 <laughs> they they um, became instant millionaires overnight. Uh, there were other instances of <coughs> they also had to go back and pay some uh, health health bills mm -hmm. because they don't offer independent contractors health insurance. So some of the independent contractors might have had a health problem or had a baby along the way. Whatever it cost, Microsoft had to reimburse them for that as well. So uh, they do have the ability to let the IRS know that they feel that they are an employee. And like I said, in most cases, because the IRS wants as many people on payroll as possible, because then they're getting regular withholding payments, et cetera, et cetera, <coughs> then they don't have to worry about this huge underground cash economy that they think is out there. So when I first was looking at, you know, when I first went to a session on independent contractors 20-something years ago or whatever, it's when this was, like, first, like, really blowing up. And one of the things that had happened was some of the corporations where I lived had laid off a ton of people and then brought them back, mm -hmm. but as independent contractors. Now, you know, I, I could figure out pretty quickly from the people that were talking, it was to avoid paying certain things and whatever, but this was those people, because I remember being taught, and I know you said this isn't as big of an issue now, that one of the things to test whether someone was an independent contractor or an employee was, did they have any other clients? You know, were they working full-time? So what I'm thinking is this actually is very pertinent to right now because of all the furloughs and then layoffs that have happened in the past 18 months. So if someone worked for a company and they get a call from their company and say, hey, we'd like to bring you on as an independent contractor. Doing the same thing that you did before. They should be classified as an employee, according to the IRS. How many days? Like if they're doing it for a week, no. But if they're doing it for, oh, even if no, they're doing it for a week. No, there's no time limit. You know, if, you, if you're bringing in somebody who did what they did before as an employee, there's no difference, the IRS says. They were doing this before. Now you want to call them this, and we're not going to go along with that. So it's. Um, I've seen other cases, too, where people have come out and said, <coughs> um, I need to cut the budget. And uh, don't worry, Pauline, uh, you're an employee. You've been with us five years. But, you know, in order to save us money, we're going to make you an independent contractor. And that, that way we don't have to pay Social Security and all that stuff on you. And, but we want you to do the same thing. I've seen that, like occurrences of that happen. And the IRS will frown upon that. Uh, they'll do more than frown, really. So it's... Um, it's 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 a big issue in the IRS. I mean, they every every audit includes a part of the every audit is independent contractors. They will ask you when they come in. One of the first questions: Show us everybody <coughs> who received a W two as an employee and a ten ninety nine in the same calendar year, and they'll ask you about that. And there are some logical explanations of that. You started as an independent contractor and they hired you, so you would get both forms in the same year. Or <coughs> you left as an employee and they brought you back as an independent contractor and you can come back as an independent contractor just not doing the same job. The other issue is um, control. How much control do they have over you? If, <coughs> if you're an independent contractor and they tell you, 
you need to be here 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, and sit at this desk, and we're going to give you all the tools that you need to do this job. Sounds like an employee, doesn't it? You know, you got to come in, you got to sit here, you got to do this, here's how we want it done, here's the tools, and here's when we want it done. So that's issues of uh, control, behavioral control, the IRS calls that. So and you know, the thing is, what applies to many of it, situations you've seen that this applies to, not that you get involved in the business parts of this, these are huge issues in like hair salons, spas, are they employees or are they independent contractors? Uber and Lyft have been another great example in the past, have been FedEx and UPS drivers. And Not FedEx and UPS, but um, probably DHL because right. they owned their own routes. Right. FedEx and UPS have always been employees. Big thing going on in California. But like um, yoga studios, Pilates mm. studios, all those, and mm -hmm. I've known people in those situations who were fighting with their the owners because they were being told when they had to be there, here's the equipment, this is your schedule, but we're going to pay you as an independent contractor. So um, just to give you some other real-life situations where this is an issue, um, kind of interesting. I've asked at times when I've been in certain places, are you employees or are you independent contractors? Because it usually tells me something about the organization as a whole, too, like how are they running it. Um, anything else you want to say on the independent contractors? Mm, no, and I, I, I know you are hospitality people, and you're, you always like to give gifts. So well, we're going to move on to that okay. in a minute, but hold on <laughs> here. <laughs> Let, let's stick with who the heck is an independent contractor. Can you guys think of anything that doesn't, like you're, you're thinking of an example and going, I'm talking to Pauline and Kelly, they're, they're here on your behalf. Um, can you think of anything? Do you kind of get the independent contractor thing? Yeah, yes. I yeah. think it's pretty clear. They it, are. You would think so. It's clear now. I didn't actually at the start of this. I wasn't really sure what an independent contractor was, but and they're both employees, <laughs> which is why we brought them on. Because ours, <laughs> yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That's that's a frequent conversation in 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 the businesses. Is someone coming on as an independent contractor? Are they going to make five hundred ninety nine dollars or less? And you know, I'm just. I think we both feel better, even though obviously it's it's more complicated and probably more expensive for us and everything. But it's like, nope, putting them in as employees. Nope, not dealing with this because also I don't want Steve's business to blow up because he, God forbid, did something unethical or against the IRS. That's kind of kind of destroys your business when you're like a tax expert. So, um, uh, plus we've had a lot of um, we've had some international people working for us and. I just never wanted to screw up their visas, and I guess it, even Pauline, that's part of the letter for you, right? Yeah, it's pretty complicated if you're an independent contractor, because then you have to register as self-employed, I think, with uh, self-employed okay. with USCIS, and then they can just wonder what are you doing in the U.S. Are you even working for someone or that type of thing? So, uh, yeah, employees much better. Than yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can do it. There's ways yeah. of doing it, but. Um, it's a lot more complicated, yeah. a lot more scrutiny. You'd probably have to have a very viable business, yeah. probably with a history and, and things like that. But, you know, I think it's important we talk about this because I think it happens a lot in this industry. You know, how many of you bring in TDs, travel directors, whatever you choose to call them, you know, help on site. And, I, heck, I'm well aware that in some cases they have been, hopefully not now, paid under the table. And, you know... 
you got to understand, I, I'm not a fan of paying anyone under the table. Um, never have been. Um, never done it, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and fought it if someone tried to do it for me. But a company can't claim that money, for example, if they hire you and they don't do the 1099 and the independent contractor stuff, they really have no reason to deduct it from their expenses. So, right? Right. They uh, will generally try and uh, hide it uh, somewhere else uh, somehow once you start down that miscellaneous. Una unethical <laughs> path. Yeah, miscellaneous. That's a good catch. And come on, come on, you listeners. <laughs> I know what has gone into our miscellaneous <laughs> lines. I'm well aware of what has gone, at least in the past, in our miscellaneous lines. So, um, yeah, so just know they can't really actually deduct it. This is, of course, a huge issue. This is, oh, wow, we haven't even touched it. I just thought of something. This is one of the issues we run into with tips and gratuity. You mm -hmm. know, a lot of organization can't give tips and gratuities to hotel staff or venue staff because it has to be trackable. So some of the venues come up with ways that you can put it on the master bill and they disseminate it and, and therefore it can be tracked. Um, you know, wait, hold on, before we go on. Now this has got me thinking about this. So this is an issue, Steve. I don't think you and I have ever talked about this. Oh, my. Uh, 12 years. Whoa, new topic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so this is a big issue. When you have an event, let's say at a hotel, you know, you got whether it be a day event, multi-day event, you want to tip the appropriate people, mm -hmm. you know, and this is a big issue. Now, some organizations won't allow untrackable tips like i know meeting planners who would take thousands of dollars on cash i don't know if this still happens i think so i've heard it in the past few years on site so they could literally hand out cash tips and i'm guessing it got put in miscellaneous but a lot of companies because i remember even when i worked for a lot of nonprofits, having to say i'm sorry i can't you know please build it in somehow can we do it so some um sometimes they would put an amount in an envelope and do it and have the employee sign mm -hmm. showing like at the end of the meeting or something like they would break the tips out that way. So I assume they would do a 1099 if that's what they did. Here's an envelope. <laughs> I'm going to tip Pauline. I'm going to tip Kelly. I'm going to tip. Are you a big Mary. tipper like $600 or more? <laughs> uh, maybe for a big multi-day meeting if they really? were like, oh, I'm trying to think of who would get to, that. To an individual, if it's less than 600, it's considered de minimis. Uh, the organization would still be able to, you know, deduct write, it. Okay, yeah, but the idea of them getting the signatures to show that they got it—that's a very it. good idea. Okay, so mm -hmm. I know this is actually—it's so funny. I hadn't even thought of this until right now, but I know what an issue this is in the industry. How do we tip? We're not getting into how much to tip because I know that's another huge issue. But how do we tip people legally, ethically, so we can deduct it and our company will let us? And the other one that sometimes they do is the hotels will let you put an amount on the master bill, like credit. Like you give them $1,000 to put on the master bill, and then it's disseminated somehow from there or something. That's generally then up up to that hotel. Right, right. To if but that would be a way to do it. But the cash in envelopes is okay with the signatures, and if oh, it's $599 or less, yeah, yeah. they don't have to worry about 1099s. Well, no, if it goes to 600 or more, you should get there. 
have them fill out a, a W. A w. You got to get your social security number, name, and address, obviously, for reporting purposes. Right. And that's generally not. Um, but I don't think even over a multi-day meeting, there'd be many employees no. getting over five hundred ninety-nine. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. So, um, <laughs> so that's a that's a way of doing it legally, ethically, and so your finance people are happy. Um, you've given them cash. They legally can do it without being reported because it's, I'm going to say, five ninety nine or less because he and I go through this conversation all the time and I get confused. De minimis. Yeah, but I is. get confused about the 600, which way the 600 <laughs> flies. So this is why he keeps saying 600 or more and I keep saying five ninety nine or less because it's the only way I can keep it straight. But that's, you know, again, that kind of falls into that independent contractor, but really he's saying it falls into the de minimis, which he's going to talk about more now because well we're going to talk about how do you want to talk about w-2s and employees and, yeah let's talk about okay so this particular section is on how these things affect employees and we'll jump in and talk about you know an example from what would happen at a meeting or event so maybe maybe i'll start with that in fact um so we're doing some kind of event and we're going to give a gift to someone. We're going to give a gift to someone who's retiring or someone who won an award or something like that. And, you know, yay, we're going to do that. And don't forget to, and how many times have you had to run out to the Apple store to buy something in the city you're in because nobody told you this. But anyway, so we're going to give someone a gift, an employee a gift for some reason. Okay, so we did it. So the value it's of a gift. The, Why the, do we care? Because the value of that gift, whatever that it happens to be worth, fair market value, arm's length transaction, willing buyer, willing seller, that determines the, the value. And uh, if you provide that to an employee, <coughs> and that's considered to be compensation value, uh, and thus subject to taxation, should be reported on their w-2 at the end of the year the value of that would be added to their wages regardless of amount it doesn't the 599 or 600 doesn't so apply it could be a hundred dollar gift could be a hundred dollar gift and you're giving it to an employee that's considered um, employment related obviously an employee is an employee is an employee is my motto if you give anything of value or cash to an employee it's got to be reported through payroll and end up on their W-2 form at the end of the year. So um, you need to make sure, because probably whoever told you to go get the gift is not thinking of this. And, you know, we have these discussions about how do you get to be good friends with your finance department. This is a way. This is a good way. They love it if you come to them and say, by the way, we gave this gift to this employee, and this is what it's worth. Because mm -hmm. then they know what to do with it, but they love the fact that they didn't get a, you did what, <laughs> kind of yeah. thing. So it's it's very valuable for I that. see this a lot with gift cards to employees, especially around the holidays. Gift cards are considered the same as cash by the IRS. Again, we're talking employees. Remember employees, this. Employees, any amount, $25 gift card. It's cash, according to the IRS, and should end up on their W-2 at the end of the year. Another word that pops out sometimes is uh, they want to avoid, so they put a hang of fancy term on it. It's called honorarium. Uh, we want to give an honorarium to this employee. 
because they did a great job, uh, you know, it was somebody in some department kind of helped put the meeting together. I want to recognize them. Because Obviously, they didn't have a meeting planning department, though. <laughs> True. Or maybe they worked with the meeting planner and uh, caused Drove us up the wall? great no, grief sorry. and woe. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so uh, they call it a different word, an honorarium or stipend is another word. But it all comes down to they're an employee. The employer is giving them cash or something of value uh, for their efforts and should end up on their W-2. So, wait, I want to back up for a minute. So, that's employees, but can we go back to gifts to non-employees? Yes. Like it's an association meeting or, um, you know, the alum, uh, the alum from the college came back and spoke or whatever, a non-employee and you gave them a gift. What's that look like? 600 or more. Um, so if Why 599? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Is that if a they're tax, sales tax? <laughs> Sorry. If they're a non-employee, <laughs> it, it reverts right back to the same independent contractor rules. Uh, if they're a non-employee, like uh, Joanne and I, we see this a lot um, – in our speaking, it's called an honorarium. Um, an honorarium, according to the IRS, is a gift of disinterested generosity. That means you're going to give it to them and expect absolutely nothing in return. Like a speech. Like a speech. So or a performance. Or a performance. If you're um, there, that should never be in writing. If you come speak for us, Joanne, we're going to give you a. $750 honorarium. Oh, when he saw, when we first got together and he saw some of my letters of agreements with people and it would use either honorarium or stipend. <laughs> I'm like, what? The red flashes everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I'm like, what? 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 <laughs> well, see, Because to me, it meant, and I know it does to a lot of you, like, we're not going to pay you your full fee because we probably can't afford it, among other things. But we're going to give you something, so we're going to call it an honorarium or stipend. That's usually how I've run into it as a meeting planner and as a speaker. The people are like, but, well, we're going to give you something. But what that really is is Payment. an exchange of services for compensation. Mm -hmm. That's how the IRS looks at it. You had to do something in order to get that money. It was not disinterested generosity it was an exchange of services for compensation so and this would be true for both gifts or cash oh yeah and it, sh it should i like you say i've seen those agreements and uh, contracts and things if you do this we'll give you a thousand dollar honorarium no that's a thousand dollar payment for services so um that would become even in the case of a speaker um reportable under that 1099 rule, $600 or more, 599, $600 or more. Um, so it should never be written. Um, it shouldn't be really a handshake or a, a wink, wink uh, type of situation. Uh, I see it quite often and a lot of people say, well, it's not around. We don't have to pay tax on that or report it. And yes, you do <laughs> for non-employees, for mm -hmm. a, a speaker. So things like that. You you mentioned you want to move on to retirement gifts. Well, we can retirement like and then it dawned on me something else. But go ahead. No, go for it. something else bouncing around inside your <laughs> my head as usual. <laughs> what isn't bouncing around my head? Um, okay, so sidebar. I just realized I really never ever had him explain who Steve is, other than the tracks translator and 
why the hell he gets to even talk about this stuff. And he started out one of his earliest, I think his first, we'll call real career versus some of the other things he did, um, was for the IRS. Yes. 15 years? 15 years. Way before my time. Um, so 15 years, uh, starting oh. out with like the customer service desk and. Yes, handing out forms, answering questions, and then. I did the last three years in, in management, which was really the straw that broke the camel's back. So but before you went into management, you were doing like investigation. I yeah, know you don't call a, them that. I forget what you call I them. I was a, in uh, field branch collections, <laughs> which meant I was out in the field. Um, people owed money or didn't file tax returns. It was my job to get them to pay it or file their tax return. And that may have involved many things. Seizure and sale of your house, seizure and sale of your boat, your car, Trying closing to your business. from their grave. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, you didn't win that one. From no, she had a big diamond ring on her finger. I wanted it. It was worth money. But <coughs> my boss wouldn't. He, he thought that might appear funny in the newspapers. So <laughs> maybe overstepping the IRS bounds. These are the things you find out when you've been with someone a while. Just be pre-warned, okay? Um, you don't find these out in your first few months you know you find them out later on and go what um and then went on to CompuServe was yeah uh, CompuServe where <coughs> was owned by H&R Block at the time and H&R Block was paying a lot of money for, to license their tax preparation software and they woke up one day and said hey we own this computer company over here called CompuServe uh, why don't we have them write uh, this tax program and um, I saw the ad and my hook was it was a tax program that prepared 18 million tax returns so I had something to do with that I was brought in as the, the kind of project manager well initially the the tax uh, tax knowledge SME subject yeah, matter expert. I brought in eight people who were tax people and uh, we talked with the programmers and we finally got them to understand uh, taxes a little bit better. And then um, <coughs> that's where I really started the translation business because we'd go to these meetings and the programmers would say something like, well, do you want that value retained in permanent memory? And uh, they would lean over H&R Block. What, what, what did he say? He said, do you want that number to appear on the front of the 1040? And they said, well, yeah. So okay. So um, we kind of figured that all out. And yeah. then you went to do, what, two or three municipalities? Yes, I was a city city of Dublin, city of Westville, a couple other little towns around there. These uh, are OHIO <coughs> towns, if you didn't know that. You know. Yes, mm -hmm. OHIO. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. And then from there you went to the colleges, right? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I became the uh, first ever tax manager at the Ohio State University. You could um, chime in too, but, you know. No. <laughs> which I thought was going to be a great job. I was going to be a tax manager at a tax-exempt organization. <laughs> this was, you know, I sat around, read paper all day, take a few hours for lunch, but uh, discovered there were a lot of uh, very special and unique tax implications to being a tax-exempt organization. So Ohio, that, go ahead. Ohio State, uh, West Virginia University, and... Um, GW, George, George Washington. Washington University, yeah. 
and some of them he had other finance-related responsibilities, too. Oh, but his, his expertise right now, well, what he focuses on is nonprofit tax. So if you ever have any tax question, he's willing to talk tax to anyone, trust me. Yes, um, all, you, all your association people out there. Uh, but definitely, you know, if you ever have a question about nonprofit tax, that's, that's what he focuses on now. Okay, so back to um, – well, I just wanted them to know. Sure. I realized la- usually I introduce you more than I did. So well. we'll just leave it at that. I started to say last time. Um, retirement gifts, length of service awards. You want to say something about that? Oh, yes. You know, a lot of times at your meetings, you may, you know, uh, Kelly's been with us for 40 years now. Let's. <laughs> 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 uh, Let's give her and, and you make forty years, then that's <laughs> going to put me at about mm, yeah. If we're still working together by then, <laughs> I'm going to consider myself damn lucky in a million ways. Go ahead. So she's finally decided to, to retire, and we want to obviously. Give I'm her not. You are. That pretty much would sum I'm it up. I'm talking about Kelly. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we we want to give her a retirement gift. So the IRS has limits on uh, retirement gifts. You can give. Um, up to uh, a retirement gift, in, uh, up to $400 in value without it becoming uh, subject to any taxation or reporting. Now, that number, $400, has, has not changed in years. So some of the retirement gifts go way beyond, you know, your basic uh, Timex watch that you used to get. Some of them get to be... I'm not sure they exist anymore, but go ahead. Timex? Yes. Uh, no, takes, go ahead. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, likely to so get some of the... <coughs> what? Likely to get what? I'm trying to think of some of the names of the... A Rolex. No, no. <laughs> Rolex, but what are some of the real big ones that are in right now? I don't Watches? Know. Yeah, you know the ones with the real big face that are so... Okay, never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> so, retirement gift. Okay, so $400. You don't have to do anything, but like I say, most a lot of the retirement gifts now are in excess of $400. Which makes it reportable and taxable. And when I say $400, if it's a gift of $401, the entire $401 is reportable. And so you don't, you don't get to deduct the $400 limit from that. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's crazy is what it is. So this, you know, you may think this doesn't pertain to you, but I can guarantee that a lot of you are going to end up having to deal with some kind of gift. So even knowing that, you know, the retirement gift is different than the <coughs> regular gift and, and everything like that, even if you don't remember these exact numbers and everything, mm-hmm. um, I talked to someone this past year who was working on some event, and I said, did you tell them if they do this? And, and they were going through the whole gift thing, trying to get their stakeholder to understand you need to think about this because we're going to have to do taxes on it. And we're going to, you know, and they were like, no, 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 you know, it doesn't matter. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, being aware of it, even if you don't know the exact amount, but before preferably you decide what the gift is to know what the consequences are. Give me a call. I think is give him a call, your finance office. But, you know, being aware of this because a lot of us do get pulled into um, doing gifts for something. Um or another favorite is length of service awards that might be presented at your meeting to an employee. Um, same thing. It's um, the $400 value. However, there's some other things. It's, it's got to be uh, something, uh, what they call tangible personal property. Yeah, it's got to be something you can touch, you can feel. Rocking chair. 
A rocking chair. Uh, five year <laughs> after your five. Colleges love to give rocking yeah. chairs with the school logo in the school colors. Mm-hmm. Kind of looks like the front of a Cracker Barrel when you finish, but you know, yeah. I, yeah. I happen to love this. So it's it's got to be have tangible. You seen a cracker Barrel. Cracker? Oh my gosh, we have to oh get Pauline gosh. to a Cracker Barrel. Yes. Really? Oh my gosh. Never been. Okay, oh. down home cooking. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and there's rocking chairs across the whole mm-hmm. front of the porch, and if it's near a college or university, it's usually done in the college colors and has the college logo, or you can buy plain ones. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nearest one, I think, here. Yeah, it's very probably. But anyway, um, yeah, see? <laughs> see the things, you know? She gets fresh, you know, French wine baguettes and chocolate. We get Cracker Barrel, but <laughs> I like Cracker Barrel, so. I do, too. Um, I do, too. Yeah, that and Chick-fil-A. We know Kelly. Love yeah, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kelly's having Chick-fil-A withdrawals because there aren't a whole lot in Massachusetts. So, yeah, she's working on it. She's got a car now, so she'll drive for it. Anyway, go ahead. Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. These were important things. Uh, Yes, they were. It's to wake people back up for part two. (laughs) Just a few quick points. Length of service awards, $400 or less. Um, It's got to be addressed as part of a meaningful presentation, like in front of the whole group. So to give somebody a length of service award behind closed doors doesn't count as a length of service award. You you can't do it as with the IRS. You can't make it disguise compensation. I can't give you a raise this year, but I'm going to give you $1,000 five-year length of service awards. And I keep saying five years because you can only get one once every five years. So um, that's the way length of service awards work. If you happen to have meetings that they call everybody up and say thank you for your 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 50 years worth of service. And again, you know, don't ex- I don't at least expect you to become a tax expert. Um, other people may vary. Um, but being aware, I think, mm-hmm. it, you know, one of the things that has happened with me with him teaching me so much about tax actually is just kind of you absorb it because you're in the house, just like he has absorbed meetings and events. I have is no choice. Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> um, is just knowing, like, wait, I think there's something I need to go check out about this. I kind of remember him saying something one day, like, you know. And uh, just so you know, this podcast will probably run over what it usually does. So feel free to listen to it in multiple parts. That's the beauty of it. You can stop it whenever you want and go back to it. But um, And some of these might not even pertain to you, at least in your current job. But you never know when you're going to change jobs. So it's always good to know these things. Um, so let's talk. Wait, let me see if I want to. Uh, so... For a lot of you, this one may not pertain, and it's we're going to talk about nonprofits. And um, the thing is, though, I have found that a lot of people in our industry, even if they don't work for a nonprofit, end up somehow being involved in a nonprofit because people go, oh, "Wait, you know how to plan an event? Could you plan the the charity walkathon or the charity gala dinner or the church this or the yeah?" I got a few years of experience on that. Um, and so it's really still good to know, and you also never know when you're going to go work for a nonprofit association. Uh, so you know, wanted to find a little bit, well, go, go with no nonprofit associations. Like what does that include in terms of, 
you know, the ones people think of, the the charities like March of Dimes and... YMCA, YWCA. Right. Uh, but then, like, business professional associations yes, and chambers. Chamber and of Commerce, your JCs, your Kiwanis. Uh, these are all nonprofit associations of one kind of another. Most of us are probably familiar with the, what's the 501c3. Uh, the 501c3 is a nonprofit organization, but that's <coughs> there are... 26 different C's, or C1, 2, 3 through 26. Most of us, C4 is an association or social organization. Um, so the 501C3 is limited mainly to uh, higher education, research, hospitals, scientific organizations. But there's all kinds of exempt organizations that fall under Section 501. And something that applies to all of them is this thing the IRS come, came up with called unrelated business income tax. So that's all the money you get from doing something and having an activity that is unrelated to your purpose in life or unrelated to the reason why you got a tax exemption form. So um, I'll use higher education. A lot of um, Colleges and universities have uh, uh, basketball arenas, and off-season they will have uh, concerts in there, or I've seen motocross in there, I've seen Jeopardy in there, I've seen the Worldwide Wrestling Federation inside a basketball arena. Well, so that definitely <coughs> fits a college's mission. <laughs> I think she was being sarcastic. Mm. But these are all activities that um, really uh, don't, have an educational purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're purely entertainment. So that's one example. So um, if you're doing something that is not related to your mission, your purpose in life as an exempt organization, or to the reason that you received your tax exempt status, that revenue then is uh, taxed just like it would be to any business that that does that type of activity. Um, a real brief history, it all has to do with macaroni. Um, New York University acquired more than 50% of the stock ownership in Mueller's Macaroni, and it was making money like crazy. Um, the auditor who examined uh, NYU said, oh, this is interesting. Um, everybody else who's a stockholder, they're, they're being taxed on this, but this New York University is not. And why is that? And it doesn't have anything to do with education. And in 1954, it appeared in the Internal Revenue Code, this whole thing called unrelated business income tax. First of all, let me just say, like another prime example, and this is one of the basic truisms in tax law. If you receive advertising revenue, if you're, if you're a nonprofit association or organization and you're paid to advertise something for somebody, that has n advertising revenue has absolutely nothing to do with whatever reason you're, you got your tax exempt status. So I want to clarify this. So for us, a lot of them, I mean, there are still some places that do ad journals um, and or, you know, signage or ads on websites or things like that. Can you please clarify <coughs> the difference? Because this was enlightening to me years ago. Difference between an ad and a... I don't even know what you call the other thing. Sponsorship? Well, the message. Oh. Well, ad and, and sponsorship. What about sponsors that get ads or something as okay. part of the sponsorship? 
uh, sponsorships. Uh, schools have a lot of sponsors. All right. If uh, there's a couple of just real quick rules, uh, you have a sponsor for your nonprofit association. Um, if number one, the, usually they want something back. You know, if it's a that's a sponsorship. Otherwise, it's yeah. a donation. Do you listen to right. my class at all? Right. It's a sponsorship. The donation is a dis gift of disinterested generosity, right? Sponsorship, right? They just but give you the money. Get something. Yeah, this is a sponsorship. I know. It's amazing, this whole intersection between tax and meeting planners, isn't it? So you can imagine our dinner conversations. So, <laughs> so first of all, if you have a sponsorship and they want something back, you can give them something back as long as it doesn't exceed 2% of the value of what they gave you. And it still stays, the whole thing still stays non-taxable. So that means that whatever you give back, you got a value. Now, in in colleges and universities, they get sponsors, uh, but the sponsors want to park close to the stadium. They want to set in a skybox. They have to value all of these things. And if it's more than 2% of what they received, then the entire sponsorship becomes subject to taxation. Number one was sponsorship. Now, what she's talking about, though, sponsorships, you can acknowledge your sponsor. There cannot be um, qualitative message in how you acknowledge your sponsor. Meaning, Stacy's Potato Chips is a proud sponsor of Ohio State football. That's good. If you were to say Stacy's Potato Chip, the best potato chip in Buckeye Land, that's qualitative. That's telling you it's better than something else. That makes it advertising. If you receive a sponsorship like, uh, again, I'll go back to the football ticket world and on the back of the baseball football ticket, um, if your home team wins tonight, uh, get $2 off at uh, Joe's Pizza tonight only. That's called a call to action. So if you have a call to action, got to do something, you know, right away or it's qualitative, that takes it out of sponsorship and makes it advertising subject to this whole unrelated business income tax, which is currently taxed. Uh, the tax rate is currently, it's been reduced. It's only 20%. So if you got a $10,000 sponsorship and you were qualitative or you had a call to action, all of a sudden you just lost 20% or $2,000 of that to Uncle Sam. So. so that's a discussion to have if you're doing <coughs> an ad journal, if you're doing sponsorships, or you're, if you're doing any kind of signage you know, what the message of your sponsor is so it doesn't become the message of your advertiser. Right. You know, um, so that's, you know, it's a very fine line, but it, it does create a difference. So as he's saying, all advertising, true advertising revenue is subject to UBIT. Correct. So sales. We have a gift shop at our event, you know, a bookstore at our event or we're selling online or whatever. Are we talking about sales tax now? Um, sure. Well, no. Oh. Actually talking about UBIT. Oh, okay. I thought um, we were staying in the UBIT theme. Sure, we can do that. If you have a, a shop um, and you're, you're selling things that aren't, that if you were selling educational books, that might be different. But if you're just selling today's top 10 popular fiction books for some reason or other, I don't know, you could What about be, clothes? Clothing, like hats, sweatshirts with the nonprofit logo or the theme of the conference or the 
sponsors logos. Right. <laughs> Those all of the and, and we're only talking about the net profits from these. In other words, uh, that that's subject to the tax. So uh, if you happen to sell some clothing, uh, you take out the cost of the clothing and any other expenses relating to its sale, and you end up with a net profits twenty percent of. It's what it's going to be. You don't have to go that specific. Right. Okay, gotcha. Right. Mm -hmm. So So it's only the the sales. And what about space rentals? So we have a lot of nonprofits. I know you deal with a lot of this in college and universities, but there's a lot of other nonprofits that now have conference centers or they rent, you know, various rooms, even for meetings or events or grounds. A lot Mm -hmm. of times it's grounds, a a park, a a sports field, Mm -hmm. whatever. What about that? Okay. If you're renting space, there's one big thing I think you should be aware of. You can rent space. The space rental is an exclusion to the unrelated business income tax, as long as you don't provide any services along with that. So by services, (coughs) you have a wedding, a wonderful chapel, and you rent that out. If you're just renting the chapel, it's not it's all space that's one of the exclusions but if you're providing uh catering or flowers or music or whatever else goes along with weddings if you're providing those services the provision of those (coughs) additional services makes it fall into this world of unrelated business income tax if you have a meeting room and you're renting out and you're a nonprofit and you're renting out this meeting room and it's just, you know, we just want to use the room. We want to have a meeting. Don't need anything else. No services. You have a meeting room and you're giving them uh, AV and you're bringing in water or snacks on break. Um, that throws it into the world of unrelated business income tax. If you happen to rent that meeting room to another nonprofit group, it's not subject to <coughs> the unrelated business income tax. But if you're really, if you're renting that room to... I don't know, pharma, and they want to have a meeting in this room. That's a for-profit organization, pharma's big for-profit organizations. Um, then it, uh, they're, they're, and you provide no additional services. It still is not going to be subject to income tax, this income tax. So I know a lot of you who are uh, planners for nonprofits also do get that fun role of, of handling the sales and rental of, you know, any facilities you might have to, of course, generate other revenue. Um, so I think you being aware of that is really important. Um, I'm sorry, did you, you mentioned equipment rentals and that whole thing too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah AV. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any, any type of equipment. Um, you know, uh, this actually came up on a, a nonprofit board that I'm on recently, uh, and and it's something I think, actually, I can think of how this affects. So one of the things you always talk about is how a nonprofit cannot support a political campaign in terms of uh, election for someone, because that's part of the guidelines for being a nonprofit is that you will stay politically, at least in terms of candidates. I'm not sure so much about, you know, uh, bills or whatever, but definitely with people. So as elections come up, this is frequently a problem for nonprofits. And elections are coming up. Elections are always coming yes, up as far as I'm are. concerned. It seems like we're just every year, even if it's two years or four years away. Um, but they can't support a political campaign, so that means no signs, no whatever, but uh, you can't, and the nonprofit can't take donations from the political campaign, right? 
or no, they can't make donations to the political campaign. They can't make donations to the political campaign. So here's one of the things, here's a similar thing I can see happening that just be aware of uh, is the the nonprofit board I'm on right now, what recently came out is a candidate wanted to join this organization, it's a membership organization, as a candidate. And therefore be able to network and subtly, in quotes, uh, campaign at the events. And we had a long conversation about being concerned about if we opened a door to a political candidate being a member. It was really the the election committee for that person was going to be the member, uh, more than the member. And we had a long conversation about this, and this is partially why. And I think it's something for you to think about, too, is if you are renting um, – you know, any of your event space to a political campaign, make sure, as you may have heard me say before, you need to make sure, well, one, will people see it as your endorsement? Uh, because I've seen hotels even end up with this, where it's like, well, they had it at that hotel. They must be, of course, it's even more interesting when the hotel has the candidate's name on it. But it is, no matter what hotel it's at, it's like they automatically assume that the San Francisco Marriott or whatever, the Boston Harbor Hotel, whatever it is, oh, well, they're a supporter. No, they sold the space for Pete's sake. You know, they got a good piece of business. But for a nonprofit, that could be even a harder, even if it was all done legally and ethically and you're not supporting them, you're just renting the space, it can be dangerous territory. Just, just something to think about. You must offer the same space to the, any opposing candidates as well. If you were to have like a town but hall. But I mean if they rented oh, right, it. Right. If they rented it. If it was free, yes. <laughs> right. But if it was rented, right. anyone could right. do it. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to uh, gaming. Uh, games of chance. Uh, now, we see this a lot at events. And I bet you they even happen, which will probably go back to the whole $600 thing. I see them happen at corporation events, but definitely at nonprofits. <gasps> let's do a 50-50, let's do, and I'm like, uh, you know, I remember uh, going through this a lot, um, professional association chapters, uh, uh, chambers I've been involved on, more traditional nonprofits, and going, no, you can't just decide to have a 50-50, you know, it, you just can't do these things, so you want to talk about that, and also talk about would there be a difference if someone was, a, if it was a for-profit, like a corporate meeting and they did something like games of chance well the first thing i want to say when you talk about games of chance is check with the state in which that game of chance is located because each so state different. is is different uh some of them um you you got to apply you got to be approved other ones got to have a things where if it's a one-day event you might be able to not have to do anything but you still got to let them know there are lots of rules around games of chance that vary according to each state. And the other thing is uh, <coughs> the IRS says that uh, a lot of people consider that a game of chance to be a charitable type of activity, but there's nothing inherently charitable about gaming. Uh, it's, it's a recreational activity. Uh, so that would might has the, has the possibility to throw that back into the world of the unrelated business income tax because you're receiving revenue from an activity that gaming has nothing to do with your save the trees, save the whales, save the dogs, whatever. Uh, it has nothing to do with that. And it's revenue that comes in and uh, 
it's not related to your exam purpose, the IRS wants uh, some of that money, possibly. So that and the uh, state rules are big, uh, vary with each state, depending upon where you are. So check with them, because some of them tightly control it. And that's kind of good recommendation for almost anything. Check your state and local municipality, the city you're having it in, the county, because they all have their own funky, weird rules. Well, like you said yeah. before, I think fire codes, capacity limits. Yeah, yeah, we run into them for a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, what about auctions? So we do a lot of those in uh, nonprofits, um, for sure. Okay, so you go to an auction and you um, you buy something and it's um, oh uh, you pay more than the value of that item. In other words, a lot of them will say three nights stay at the hotel uh, valued at six hundred dollars. So let me stop right there because <laughs> this know. is what I see. <laughs> Two things happen when these are put up, and the hotel stays are a great one. Either it's done full rack rate, you know, $400 a night, so it's a $1,200 value for those three nights, or they bring it way down and say it's worth 450 like $150 a night. And what he's getting ready to explain, obviously when it's the higher, the rack rate, it's to make people go, wow, this is a $1,200 value you know, I'll bid, and I'm going to be getting a great deal if I buy it at $800. So what happens if they do that? It says it's a $1,200 value, but I bought it at $800. What would happen? If they, well, at nothing really. I mean, they, they receive something. Here's the, what the organization has to do. First of all, they should be sending a... Um, a donation or a gift acknowledgement receipt letter. Thank you very much for your purchase at the auction. Um, please consult with Which your... Which means it falls to the yeah. meeting and event planning department. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so then it's... And then you always state, please consult with your tax preparer. Uh, you might state the value of the item and uh, what was paid, and please consult with your tax preparer. Don't ever give tax advice. Don't I wouldn't... If you ever say have anything to say about uh, charitable contribution deduction, use the word may. It may be deductible uh, because you don't know the individual's circumstances on their tax return. There are limits on how limits on charitable contributions uh, at the individual level. So <coughs> you send out that it works it works the in the opposite way um, even better. Um, they buy a hotel stay for eight hundred dollars, and it's really it's valued at it's really valued at six hundred dollars. The only amount the individual is permitted to deduct is that two hundred dollars. That's the two hundred dollars over the value. That's the contribution because they received six hundred dollars worth of value. So they got they got they paid six hundred. They got six hundred back plus two hundred. So the two hundred is. Uh, the only thing that is a, a, an actual contribution. So that's why an organizer or a hotel or whoever might do that is put it down to like the minimum rate that they would charge for the rooms mm -hmm. because they want people not only to feel, well, they won't feel like they got a deal if they, you know, uh, spend over it, but they will get the tax deduction. Right. So it's kind of like know your audience. What's going to motivate them? Is it going to motivate them to think they got a great deal? 
um, or is it going to motivate them to be able to deduct it from their taxes? And it kind of depends when I think back on what type of auction, who the organization is, how people fall mm -hmm. into that, I would say. I see a lot of this, too, around th uh, fundraising dinners mm -hmm. in nonprofit associations. If you um, $100 a plate dinner, uh, you should receive a, a receipt acknowledged. Thank you very much for attending our fundraising dinner and your $100 contribution. The value of the dinner you received was $50. Please consult with your tax professional. What that means is <coughs> they'll only be able to take as a charitable contribution the $50 over the value of the dinner. So, and they should be sending out these gift, gift receipt acknowledgement letters because the individual is going to need that in the event they're ever audited, look, I and got this thing. And depending on the organization, it may fall to the meeting and event planning team. In other places, it's going to fall to the finance team. Depends on how big your organization mm -hmm. is frequently. Um, if, it's a, if it's a big, uh, if it's a large nonprofit, they probably have a fundraising department who know more about you than you could ever believe. Yeah, but meetings and events usually fall under that right. or are part of it. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Um, Let's move on. Uh, uh, did you have anything else on nonprofits you wanted to say? Or? No, no. Okay. So let's move on to um, uh, sales tax. Sales tax. Uh, because sales tax, uh, I see it affecting people uh, two ways. And as the buyer, we're talking again about nonprofits. What if the buyer is tax exempt? So let me just in a minute talk about that or let him talk about it really. But the other thing is, is if you're a seller, and I see this happen with venues, for example, or other suppliers to the industry who get told by someone, but we're tax exempt, you shouldn't be charging us tax. So again, we're talking about sales tax, and I know one of the first things he's probably going to say is all, a lot of things vary state to state, as we know all the tax rates do and everything, but this is just overall about being tax exempt for sales tax, so go for it. All right, if you're a nonprofit organization, probably within your own state, you are exempt from paying sales tax per uh, purchases in that state. However, as a nonprofit organization in any state, um, you can apply for sales tax exemption in several other states. So if you're a nonprofit organization in Massachusetts, but your meeting's going to be in wherever, um, Texas, just pick a state. You can make an application as a nonprofit organization in Massachusetts to be exempt from your purchases in Texas. And if Texas grants you that, that means you don't have to pay sales tax on your meals, your hotel rooms, anything that you purchase uh, from or in Texas. So it's sort of worthwhile to kind of explore that if you're a nonprofit association and you have meetings um, outside your state. And a lot of, I've met planners, I had one in my class a few years ago, and she uh, was on the international, she was the lead planner for the international worldwide, one of the fraternal <laughs> organizations. And so they were going around the world, but it's also located different places here in this country when they're U.S.-based, plus she has a lot of regional. And I remember this coming up in class, and she said, oh yeah, we filed in every state we can mm -hmm. to, uh, to make that happen. It's so a big money saver. It is, yeah. absolutely. And I work with that one organization, and we w became tax-exempt in 26 different states. So saved a lot of money. So, you know, if you um, 
if you move your meetings around or you're purchasing from a particular area, uh, that is, you know, it's definitely yeah. something to... Yeah, you don't have to have a meeting there. If you, if you were to make purchases of... Uh, Binders and the binder company is, binders. <laughs> is well, binders and your binder company is located in a state that has granted you sales tax exemption, and then you can get all those wonderfully colored binders uh, sales tax free. So all different sizes too. <laughs> so what about a venue? So this is interesting because it came up a couple of years ago. A friend of mine who's a DOS at a property, um, she called. Well, she called me, but really she called Steve and said, you know, I'm running into this situation where this nonprofit is telling me I can't charge them sales tax because they're tax exempt. And she said, but they're from, I don't remember what state, she's in Indiana. And they're like, no, we're tax exempt. You know, we're tax exempt. And honestly, I thought this for years. If you're tax exempt, you're tax exempt in the whole country. That the federal government gave you tax exempt, which, you know, obviously isn't true from what he's telling Two us. Two different levels of government, federal and state. We're talking about sales tax. Right. Yeah. But again, that's, I think, most of us don't realize that at the beginning. You're told you're tax exempt. And the first thing you're usually taught is sales tax. So... Um, so what advice did you give Angie? Well, the one general rule of thumb is they'll say we're tax exempt. Here's our federal identification number, our federal ID number. That is not a state sales tax exemption certificate number. That's a federal number. It has absolutely nothing to do with sales tax. So um, uh, Angie was in Indiana, mm -hmm. and uh, you – well, first of all, you she needs – in order for that group to be – exempt from sales tax at her venue, she would have needed for them to submit a an Indiana sales tax exemption form in that for that state. So So they would and I think that was the advice you gave her that she went back to them is they needed to file in Indiana mm -hmm. to get tax yeah. exempt status. And if they did, then she could give right. them Right. Um, and again, most of the time, it's just people don't know. I mean, I was extremely involved in nonprofits, but usually was in the state at that time of New Jersey for everything. So it didn't really affect me because it was registered. All the ones I was working with were registered in New Jersey and I was buying everything in New Jersey. So I never realized if I crossed the state line that I wouldn't have been tax exempt. Yeah, you should obtain that certificate at the time of the sale and retain it for four years minimum so now if you're you want to move on do you have another question well i don't think you have the, do you have these pages they were stuck in the other ones he has notes yeah i have like yeah. four bullet points i got pauline em. walked in today and went oh my gosh you have notes now i said steve does <laughs> um you have these so where do you want to go with that oh we're still on sales tax Let's oh talk sorry a, talk about as a seller okay because I thought we were talking about that, but go ahead. No, we were. Well, we know we were. Go ahead. We were talking about people buying from you, uh, and telling you that they were tax exempt and okay. their need to get. I would have thought that was the seller's perspective, but go for it. I'm obviously missing well, something. You you uh, you go got to charge sales tax on the items. Okay, if you sell it to anybody, individuals are individuals are not exempt from sales tax. So. If you're selling in a state, like you go somewhere and you have a meeting and you're selling the, the books, T-shirts, coffee cups, water mugs, or whatever you happen to be selling, they're probably going to be subject to that state's sales tax, which means you got to collect it and you got to send it to that state. Oh, I see what you're saying. Selling. If the nonprofit is the seller. Yeah, well, even, a, even corporate. 
Yeah, yeah but what you yeah. kind of made yeah. reference to that right. before with the stores. But right. okay, so what you're saying is you're right. I, I totally get it, and I totally forgot this point. If you're a nonprofit, like say you're one of these fraternal organizations or whoever, and you're now having your meeting in six states over, well, even if you were having it in your own state, you have to charge sales tax. Right. Okay. Right. Like yeah. you might be selling them the Kappa 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 Gamma pen. <laughs> it's uh, that's subject to. Uh, Going to jump in with your sword. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's subject to sales tax. Students are not exempt. Uh, individuals are never exempt from sales tax. So. And just because the organization selling it is a tax exempt organization, these are the kind of questions he deals with on a regular basis. Well, why do we need to charge sales tax? We're tax we're a tax exempt organization. Yeah. It's like. No, that's when you buy, not when you yeah. sell. Or all the money we make from these sales uh, goes to support our uh, our efforts. The state doesn't care what you do with the money. It's how you got it. And if you sold something in that state. Now, um, you might have to, uh, some states will have like a, an exemption for one-day sales. Uh, if you're there multiple days, some states don't. But uh, you you might have to apply to be a vendor and get a sales tax certificate. There are some states that say the rate of tax must be posted so it is visually observant when the purchaser buys it. Or you could you have to sometimes you have to have a sign that says sales tax is is included. Or other states say sales tax is not included. Uh, you have to have all these different things that states vary if you happen to sell in different states or even in your own state. Well, and also even one of the things I've learned is state to state have sales tax on different things, which I kind of knew, you know, some states charge on clothes, some don't charge on clothes, some charge on, uh, you know, certain types of food, their definition of food. That's one of the big ones I've heard the stories about is their definitions of food can be extremely different. So make sure you know what's going on before you need to do it. Mm-hmm. So, okay, anything else on nonprofit sales tax, et cetera? No. You want to talk about virtual trade shows? I do, because mm-hmm. this is hot, given the most recent pandemic and everybody doing virtual things and things like that. They came out with some guidance, uh, and they do it by a couple of different, uh, either hybrid or solely online. So this is a virtual trade show, hybrid model. Um, so a hybrid model is a an in-person trade show, but it has an online component, meaning you don't have to be there. You can still go to the trade show virtually. The you same know what's interesting? Mm. This just happened. I thought what's of this. What's interesting? So the Fancy Food Show in New York City, which is huge. When I lived in New Jersey and I worked for a gourmet food store at some point, that's... Fancy food show. Fancy food show. It's where all the gourmet foods, where all the people come and have booths to to get stores and vendors to, you know, pick up what they're selling. It's huge. Um, I forget how many people I saw it brings in. It's a multi-day show. Maybe, maybe 100,000 into New York City at some part. A lot of fancy foodies. So, well, you know, think about it, especially now. I can only imagine what it's like now. I mean, when I knew about it, it was like 20 years ago. Um, But they had to cancel. They chose to cancel. It was coming up. It was supposed to be the end of September, so about three, four weeks from now. Mm -hmm. They canceled it. But they're keeping their online component, Steve. They're keeping so you can still visit the fancy food show mm-hmm. on the online show. Mm-hmm. So, so the hybrid model. 
It was, yeah, it was hybrid. Well, now it's just going to be virtual. Oh, started well, out as hybrid. That. We're going to talk about that. There we go. All right. So if you have this hybrid model, that all qualifies for exception, uh, an exception uh, as far as uh, your um, unrelated business income tax. So hybrid model, got some in person, some online. It's only available uh, during a trade show or plus or plus three days before or three days after. Um, the real face-to-face meeting. The hybrid. I shouldn't say real. Yeah. Okay. So hybrid. So it's the same. You give them everything that they get at the in-person show. You get exhibitor information, displays, product directories, links to exhibitor websites. So it's just like you're there only you're not there. It's virtual, right? So that qualifies right. for the exception now. Okay. You're talking about nonprofit one here. So like an yeah. association or something. If you happen to do a virtual trade show solely online. So no, well, if it's no, approved, I don't know if it's no face-to-face, no hybrid. <coughs> Same content is available, exhibitor information, directories, links to the websites. There's no overlap with any in-person trade show that happens. It's all virtual does not qualify for an exception from the unrelated business income tax. I don't know why. I don't make up the rules, but that's what Okay, so any association that this past year, for example, only had a virtual, you with me? Mm -hmm. That's not... A virtual trade show. Right. Yeah, would, that would make the revenue the organization received from that Subject to the unrelated business income tax. But if they do a hybrid, yes, and they get to carry out the face-to-face mm-hmm. part, mm-hmm. it's okay. It's an exception. <laughs> it's an exception to the unrelated business income tax, if that's what you mean by it's okay. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> so wait, it, it, what about if it's all face-to-face, oh, like in the in old y- days? In, in the <laughs> old days, all right. February twenty twenty. It would have been considered. It would have been an exception. Because it's uh, educational ads value. It ties in with yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. okay. But if it's a virtual conference with a virtual trade show, if it overlaps with that, if it's only virtual, it's okay? As long as it's attached to the education or no? No, no. If it's all solely virtual. Okay. Even if it's attached to an educational don't part. Don't care. Okay. Yeah. So point being, virtual trade shows. Are taxable. They're UBIT. They're unrelated business income tax. Well, yeah. that's lovely. Yeah. And I guess corporations who do them. I wonder if fan- now I'm going to look see who does the fancy food show. I wonder if that's an association or you know some kind of nonprofit. It There's an be. association for everything. It's there is, and that's fancy what I'm food thinking. Association. It, well, <laughs> it, it may FFA. be. It, it may be some kind of you know, yeah. It, it actually might be, but um, yeah, that was one of the many ones that is we are in the third slash fourth week of August, and that was one of the ones that just came out in the past couple of days when we're recording this, along with the NRA convention being canceled in Texas. Which wasn't too far in advance, right? Was no, like that's very quick. And was like, I mean, like a week or two before it was supposed to start? Uh, yeah, there were a bunch of them that have been canceled that are supposed to be in the next three weeks or less that have been canceled this week. So, hmm. yeah. So, okay, I'm sorry. Virtual trade shows, anything else? Nope. Okay. And then you, because everyone, okay. So whenever I teach and we talk about shipping, we talk about back tax, except we don't really because it is one of the most um, ambiguous things 
I'm pretty good at getting my head around things if I really make myself and ask enough questions and research enough. And here's what I've learned about fat tax is you will be charged it <laughs> in most countries. In a lot of countries, you can get it back. Um, it's different in every country, and you don't want to try to get it back yourself. You either have a department in your organization or you hire a company to do it that gets a percentage of what they get back. So that's my take on back tax because even the name doesn't make sense to me, and I've tried. I would say that's an excellent summary <laughs> of value-added tax. Pay another company to get it back. Um, it's just complicated. You'll find that a lot of um, CVBs, DMOs, uh, they will actually like waive that tax or whatever as incentives to get you there. But sorry, go ahead. It just changes all the time, and it changes whenever countries, you know, United Kingdom went from seventeen and a half to twenty percent. Uh, Germany last year um, actually reduced it from nineteen percent to seven percent. Oh wait, I have a question for Pauline. You may know too, because I know you've traveled in Europe, but. Um, so, with the European Union, mm -hmm. would you cross into another country that's part of the EU? Mm -hmm. Do you pay, have to pay VAT tax on stuff? Or is it like, oh, if you're part of the EU, we're all good? Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> but Not that we've done before, anyways. <laughs> but an individual can't get it back anyway, come to think of it. This is strictly an uh, uh, organization thing. Individuals can't get VAT tax back. I know I learned that finally. But... Well, the thing is, each there's 140 countries that impose that tax, and out of 180 something, yeah. mm -hmm. but whatever there is today. when it comes to event-related goods and services, they're all over the board. Some will charge VAT on this, but others won't on the same thing. Um, so it's it's or even the type of meeting, whether it's an incentive meeting or a sales meeting, there's different VAT tax. It's it's just absolutely bizarre. Well, and what really throws me is the actual name, because I remember asking Steve a long time ago, so what added. does this mean? Value-added tax. <coughs> now, the concept, what he tells me and what I've read, makes sense, but not with what we're talking about. So it's the idea of you take a product or a service, maybe, but definitely a right. product, and it's in one form, and then you improve it, and the value-added tax is on what has been added to improve it. And honestly... And it's not that I haven't tried. I mean, I keep trying, as you can probably hear me struggling right now. Like, I get that concept. It's almost like buying something wholesale, mm -hmm. you know, creating something out of it, selling it retail, and you have to pay the tax on. And that's really common, like here in the United States. If you buy something wholesale and you're a company, you don't have to pay sales tax because you're going to charge the sales tax when on the final product you're selling. So I... I understand that gap thing, like, oh, we improved it, so somebody has to pay tax on that. But I haven't been able to figure out how that really applies to our industry. Well, it, like I say, some of them will mention specific things regarding meetings and events in particular. So does that help? No. Oh, okay. No, because, like, I'm thinking food. Okay, the, the, <laughs> the hotel buys food wholesale. So, assuming there's sales tax in that country, they I don't add know. value to it by cooking it. Right, mm -hmm. but to me, that would just be a sales tax then. It, yeah, on the it, on the on the. Yes, it's very comparable to so, a sales tax. But there's some countries you go to when they charge you sales tax and, and VAT tax. Yes, there are. 
Is it, okay. Do so you think it's? Do you think it's supposed to be? We tried to make that as clear right. as mud for you today, right. um, just so you could understand that you are not the only one that doesn't get it. Right. Um, but it always comes up in Canada. Calls it a, a GST, goods and services tax, not necessarily <gasps> a VAT tax. That's right. They do. In the Caribbean or the Caribbean, whichever you prefer. They don't allow organs. They don't give refunds of VAT tax. Just, nah, we're not doing it. So, and Mexico got rid of the VAT tax here lately. Did they get rid of it entirely? Because yeah. I know they did a big thing for meetings and events years yeah. ago where... It'll be back. If you were uh, under, you know, meetings and events, they weren't charging you a VAT tax. So it was when right. they really started going for international right. meetings like 15 years ago or so. Right. It's just, uh, it's ever-changing and it's complex, and they have people that specialize in that. <laughs> I don't yeah. deal with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's put it this way. I can tell you it's bad. There's two things I'll go and ask him tax about, sales tax, although sometimes he can get into sales tax and talking about why bubble gum is a food in some states and not in others, and therefore how it's taxed in some states and not in others. Oh, back to sales tax. Well, no, I'll go back in a minute. That tax is the only other one I've ever asked him about any tax question about anything. I mean, he'll talk about inheritance tax. He'll talk about... Or you know, I just found out about uh, the airline... Um, okay, you can do that one in a minute. Okay. But then we really need to let these people yeah, go um, because yeah. we've gone for so long. But um, that tax is the only the only one he's... Uh, sales tax, he would go, yeah, I don't really like sales tax. It's my least favorite, blah, blah, blah. But here, this is what you need to know. But that tax, he just looked at me at one point and went, nope, don't get it. Don't want to. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is bad if he doesn't want to talk about it. But I just thought of something about sales tax. Another example of how sales tax can... Um, I mean, we all know uh, that, you know, frequently when you go to a meeting, you are paying a city tax, a county tax, mm -hmm. a state tax in the United States. Um, some of them have recently increased, but that's another story. But anyway, at one point a few years ago, uh, some of the cities, and I think Philadelphia was the first city, who wanted to put an additional 1.5% tax on any carbonated beverages, right? That's what it was. Um and you think, yeah, okay, whatever. Until you think about, so this was things in cans, in bottles, out pitchers. of the... What? Pitchers, yes. Pitchers, well, mm -hmm. I was thinking of what you fill the pitchers with. Mm -hmm. But picture a ballroom with all those round tables with a pitcher of soda, pop, whatever you choose to call it. What do you call it? What? Soda or oh. pop. You probably picked up whatever New England says. What do you call it? Soda? Soda. Soda. Yeah, I, soda. I think so. <laughs> See, I've moved around so much, I don't remember which areas of the country call it soda, what call it pop, and I know people who called everything Coke. Coke, orange Coke, great Coke, root beer Coke. Okay, so anyway, um, but think about all those pitchers, and let's say a pitcher is about, mm, probably about a half gallon, I'm guessing. Usually 60 and ounces, if it's the same as a beer pitcher, which I'm familiar with. Mm. <laughs> there may be more than one pitcher on the table. Yeah, exactly. Well, light. usually it's it's like a soda, a water, an, an iced tea, or whatever. But, you know, there's at least one pitcher of carbonated beverage mm -hmm. on it. So, you know, you've got 100 tables in there. That's 100 pitchers of it. And a good chance it's going to be refilled w once. So let's say that ends up being a gallon. And you've got 100 gallons, and now you're paying an extra 1.5% sales tax. Per ounce. What? Per ounce. Oh, per ounce. Yes, that would make sense. Per ounce. Think how much. So a gallon's what? One hundred and twenty-eight ounces. Here we go. Get out ounces. the calculators. 
128 ounces. Times 100. All right, she's thinking now. Yeah, but I don't have my calculator okay. out. So anyway, <laughs> you get the point. Like this could truly affect your budget. So um, weird things like that <coughs> where you think, excuse me, where you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, uh, that's why I'm always saying read the news, read the news, read the news, read the mm -hmm. news, because these things can uh, um, go up in, in the greater Boston area, Boston, Cambridge area. They just enacted, how much did they take the destination tax up to? Well, uh, for hotels, uh, 50 rooms or more created a special bureau to help advertise the Boston and Cambridge area. Uh, what was it? Uh, one and a half percent more Something tax. Another on top of what on the top tax of the regular room tax and sales tax and everything. So if else. you're doing a meeting and and this is not a slam toward Boston, I love Boston, but you know every city and there may be a lot of other cities that do this too to help come out of the pandemic. So be aware that a lot of those destination taxes could be going up mm -hmm. um, in the next few years. So, comments, thoughts, Pauline and Kelly, you awake? They're, yes. <laughs> they're just, just astounding. Did you learn anything? Yes, thank you, Steve. Mm -hmm. Did you learn anything? Or oh, my God, yes. yes. <laughs> I know, hopefully, it, hopefully it stays, but I definitely. Again, well, what I think of is as long as enough retains that you go, oh, I remember him saying something yeah. about that. I got to go look it up or go ask him, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, to me, it's a w awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and in one of, I think it will have been up by the time this one comes up, when I was thinking about what I want these podcasts to be, and I realized it's what I told my Boston University class this past spring, is I want you to learn, I want you to think, and then I want you to apply it. Um, and I guess that's kind of what I do, too, is I learn things from a weird variety of places, um, including Steve. But anyway, weird variety of places, and then I think about them, and... Oh, you don't want to be around me when I'm thinking about things um, and then figure out how it applies. So hopefully, even though you thought, yeah, tax, whatever, that some of these really did um, help you. Uh, these are issues that come up all the time. Sales tax, tax exempt, independent contractors. Um, Unrelated business income tax. Well, if you're nonprofit, <coughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, Steve, why don't you give them your email uh, that if they oh. have any questions. And he seriously means this, that you are welcome to email or call him about anything tax-related. I have an email of stevethegreat at joannedennison.com. Oh, yeah. Did you know he got that while at you were gone? stevethegreat at <laughs> joannedennison.com. I did not know that. <laughs> Well, I figured after a while, at first it was going to be Steve at JoanneDennison.com, and it just became easier no, to it just has make to it. be the whole thing. <laughs> right. Steve the Great. Right. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, he also can be reached at Steve the Tax Translator. My close friends just call me STG. Ah, uh, like Devin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Devin has named him STG. Um, so, you know, it, it, he's, he's very serious about that. He, he likes to be a resource. He'll talk tax the way we'll talk anything, meetings and events. Um, so I hope even though this ended up being much longer than our, our usual podcast, like an hour and a half, uh, but again, the beauty about podcast is you put it on pause and you go back to it. So, you know, whenever it's convenient for you to chop it up. Um, also, uh, 
you may have heard on prior places or seen it in the e-guide. Oh, e-guide, Steve. What? How can they get on the e-guide? It's my kind of sort of newslettery thing. They can text Meat Guide M E E T G U I D E to two two eight two eight Meat Guide two two eight two eight. So that's one thing for you to know, but you might have seen there, and we've mentioned it on some prior podcasts, he's putting together, I think he's decided to call it a booklet um, of uh, living with a meeting planner. So if you have any stories of your friends or family thinking you're odd because you have an obsession with binders, lists, little white lights, correcting, um, you know, the Olympians went up on the podium. It's what you stand on, not what you stand behind, because that's a lectern. Things like that that you're willing to share. Um, you may have read some. He wrote two prior articles on this. Uh, please send them to him, and you guys can get in a chit chat about uh, it going into the booklet, and then you have something to give all these people who think you're odd to show that they are not the only one that you're not the only one who does what you do and they're not the only one who thinks that it's odd um again check uh, the website social media if you're interested in any of the upcoming cmp classes there's also some new stuff coming down the road and um yeah that's good enough for now so we are going to uh, sign off and let's see we'll start with pauline since she's back <gasps> Why don't you say I something in French to them? Yeah. How do you say goodbye? Bonne journée. Au revoir. <laughs> Au revoir. Au revoir. Yeah, I'm going to say bye because I'll probably pronounce it really badly. <laughs> but anyway, Pauline, love having you back. We're so Thank thrilled you. to have you. We really did miss you. Kelly, true meaning of the word trooper because... <laughs> Uh, just as you went to uh, go back and see your family, of course, Marianne's schedule changed and Kelly has been holding down uh, one full-time job and this one, which was becoming a full-time job because of uh, you know other people's schedules changes. So thank you. I'm very, very grateful for everything you've done uh, in the past four or five weeks. And Steve, would you like to say something? Listeners, thanks for writing along on uh, tax and meeting planners. And we cruised through all the intersections and didn't have any collisions. And make sure you tell mom and them about this podcast. I know, she's looking at me like she's crazy. Yeah, I'm sure if you could see my face right now. (laughs) We took a little ride. We went, you know, intersection collision. Is this because we went to see Jungle Cruise the other night and you got into all the puns or something? I don't know. Anyway, but thank you. We really appreciate it. Hope you did pick up a lot of useful information. Again, don't necessarily have to memorize it all. Just know that it's there. Be aware so you know what questions to ask and uh, what to look up and find answers for when it's time for you to do something. Um, very grateful for you coming and listening to these, whether they're 30 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes and everything in between. Uh, really appreciate it. As Steve said, please share if you think it's valuable for other people. I know a lot of you are listening to it while you're driving or cooking, or um, I'm trying to think of other pictures I've gotten recently. Driving? Cook- well, no, they didn't take a picture while they were driving. <laughs> um, or power walk. So uh, glad to have you with us and look forward to um, being with you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.